This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... Although there may be nothing spectacular coming out of this, there must be a reason for the meeting. Most of the meetings of this sort, they are short. Maybe it's just a couple of hours. The agenda is, is largely preset. There is nothing likely to come out of this encounter which is going to be life-changing for any of us. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. Got the almost obvious subject for our listeners today, and that is the upcoming summit between President Joe Biden and Russia's Vladimir Putin. We're going to look at the history of big diplomatic set pieces like this, how Geneva often tends to host them. This is the moment which the peoples of the world, weary of the Cold War, have awaited for years. At the Palace of Nations in Geneva, the leaders of the four great powers... And we're going to look really hard at what we can expect of what is, at the end of the day, going to be just a one-day meeting, even maybe just a couple of hours. What's on Washington's agenda? First and foremost, Ukraine, and some assurance that nothing is going to happen in Ukraine that will precipitate tensions. What does Moscow want? I want to assure you that you're not interfering in your elections as long as you don't interfere in our domestic affairs and be a little bit more quiet about people like Navalny and, and, and so forth. And how different is this meeting going to be from the last time the leaders of Russia and America met? I think Biden wants to say, I'm not Donald Trump. You can count on what I'm saying, and it's not going to change all the time. And you're not going to have this kind of relationships you had when Trump was president. To take part in this discussion, we have Charles Adams. He's a former U.S. ambassador to Finland, lives now in Geneva. We have Yussi Hanimaki, professor of international history at Geneva's Graduate Institute, and bringing, as ever, the satire and the cynicism, we've got our analyst, Daniel Warner. To begin, let's start with the place rather than the big men. They're coming to Geneva. Other cities, countries were quite keen. I heard that Austria was trying to position itself. I heard that Finland was quite keen. I'm going to come to you first, Yussi. Why do you think they settled on Geneva? Well, I think, I mean, Geneva is, is always an obvious uh, contender in, in, in these types of meetings. It's, it's hosted some of the famous ones with, with Gorbachev and Reagan in 1985. And, and before that, we know about the spirit of Geneva in the 1950s, for example. Britain, America, France and the Soviet Union are meeting to see if they can iron out their differences around the conference table. Geneva was clearly one of the front runners, no matter what. In part, of course, there's the Swiss tradition of neutrality that makes it so. Probably in this case, Helsinki A had already recently hosted one that is a bit in- infamous in, in some ways between Trump and Putin a few years ago. So and we're going that, to get to that in a moment. <laughs> that, that left Finland and Helsinki out. And I think Maybe, and this is just a, just a hunch, the, f- the very simple fact that uh, Switzerland is not in the European Union, as opposed to Austria, may also have played some, some role in this. Charles, what do you think? Because I've covered quite a lot, say, the, the Syria talks and the Syria chemical weapons talks, talks about Ukraine, the Iran nuclear. One thing you always hear is the Russians really like Geneva. 
Is that something you've heard? The Russians like uh, Geneva, yes. The Russians also like Helsinki, since it's next door and logistically convenient. Bratislava figured on the short list this time around, along with Vienna. And as uh, Yussi was suggesting, Helsinki was actually out of the running quickly because of the precedent of the Trump-Putin summit, which left a lingering bad taste in the mouth, in particular, of the American side, the current American side. And I think that there was early on a determination to hold this summit somewhere other than Helsinki. Jeunes voix déployées sur le terrain, plus de 900 en provenance d'autres cantons et presque autant de militaires pour assurer la sécurité de ce face à face entre Joe Biden et Vladimir Poutine. So Danny, do you think the Swiss are cock a hoop? Are they absolutely delighted? I mean, it's we see what the Geneva police have to do when these guys come to town. Well, I think Geneva and Switzerland are thrilled at having this. It puts Geneva on the map, uh, hoping for certain business uh, economic boosts from this after the pandemic. What I do find fascinating is what a Russian official said, uh, that it brings back memories of the 1985 Reagan-Gorbachev, which was enormously successful, but it also brings back memories of the Cold War. So perhaps for the Russians, this is another kind of conference taking place during a form of a Cold War between the United States and Russia. Mr. President, Mr. Gorbachev, do you have good news to toast tonight? How did it go? Well, let's look at that specifically. That's what everybody's talking about, Reagan Gorbachev. You see, mostly though, My impression is these quick summits, as opposed to with Iran nuclear, where you've got an actual treaty you need to work on, these quick summits don't achieve that much. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the obvious contrasting point is, is, is to the Reagan Gorbachev summit in 1985. You have to remember nothing, nothing came out of that in a concrete agreement terms. It's famous because it was the first time. And it's famous because of what, how the next five years evolved in terms of American-Soviet relations, in terms of the end of the Cold War. But in fact, there was no agreement in Geneva. It was a meeting that set the tone very early on in Mikhail Gorbachev's tenure as the leader of the Soviet Union. And that was supremely important, but it was followed up by meetings in Reykjavik uh, and then eventually in 87, the INF Treaty and, and, and so forth. So it did set the tone and that's why it, it was important. Uh, similarly, you know, if you go back to some of the other meetings, well, in Geneva, I mentioned the spirit of Geneva from the 1950s, which was a bigger summit. A longer summit, we had the leaders not only of the Soviet Union and the United States, but also France and, and Great Britain. And it was important in a sense in 1955, which was the height of the Cold War. And it gave certain hope, gave certain idea that you could actually live together on, on the planet without uh, even in this highly contentious climate that, that was, the, was the early Cold War. But, but yeah, I think broadly speaking, most of the meetings of this sort, they are short. You mentioned maybe it's just a couple of hours. The agenda is, is largely preset. In the first type of summits like this, it's it's perhaps something taking a measure of the other. Of course, these are not 
two strangers to each other because Biden was the vice president for eight years already. And so it's not like they're meeting for the very first time, which was certainly the case with, with Gorbachev and Reagan back in 1985. So, so yeah, I, I wouldn't have very high expectations that you're going to see any major, major outcome from this particular conference. But it, it is, of course, it, it is there to set the tone. Over here, Mr. President. Over here. One for all shake hands. Take care. So, Charles, what do you think the tone could be like? Because, as we said, Biden and Putin have actually met. And Biden has said that when he met Putin, he looked into his eyes and said, I don't think you have a soul, which is basically a terrible thing you can say to a Russian. And he also quite recently, in an interview, called Putin a killer. So, I mean, is this a get-to-know-you meeting where they already know each other a bit and the mood music is going to be a bit tense? Actually, when it comes to uh, tone, there actually have been already two positive developments in the bilateral relation. The first was the renewal in February of the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, which uh, went largely unnoticed and unreported, but all the same was a milestone. And the second occurred in Reykjavik a couple of weeks ago when uh, the American side made it clear that they were taking opposition to and sanctions in relation to Nord Stream 2 off the table. And this had been an irritant to the Russians, not just to the Russians, actually, but to the Germans as well, and to everybody along the line of the uh, Nord Stream 2 itinerary, including the Finns. So these are two positive developments that I think suggest that the uh, tonality of this forthcoming encounter is likely to be, uh, on the whole, Cordial. Danny, what do you think? Well, I mean, I want to come back to 1985 and, and UC's comment that nothing much came out of the actual meeting. I point to the joint declaration, which said nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. So although there may be nothing spectacular coming out of this, there must be a reason for the meeting from Putin's perspective. The meeting obviously gives him prestige, something that he needs for the moment on the international scene. Why is Joe Biden coming to this? He's in Europe. He has a tremendous amount to do within the country. Why does he need this? And it does seem to me that there must be an effort on the Americans' part to ease the tensions. Biden said he was going to talk about human rights. The Russians said they're not expect that there will be uncomfortable signals coming from Russia as far as troops and whatever, if Biden wants to talk about human rights, it does seem to me there must be a reason for the Americans to have this. And I would be a slightly more positive uh, in looking for some kind of joint declaration, which will move things forward. Well, that's quite ambitious. I tell you what, let's have a little role-playing game. You see, you can be uh, Vladimir Putin and Charles, you can be Joe Biden. You see what's top of your agenda? I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I want you to leave me alone. I, I want you not to, to make too much about the Crimea anymore. I, I want you to understand that we still have a large nuclear arsenal, that, that, you know, we don't need a confrontation of this sort. I want to assure you that we're not interfering in your elections as long as you don't interfere in our domestic affairs and be a little bit more quiet about people like Navalny and, and, and so forth. And, and I want to make sure that, you know, economically we can find common ground. Charles, or Joe, rather, what's going to be on your agenda? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, Ukraine, 
and some assurance that nothing is going to happen in Ukraine that will precipitate tensions in the manner uh, that did the troop maneuvers last month. Probably second, uh, some mention of Belarus and the need for uh, Putin to discourage uh, some of the excesses of the Lukashenko regime. I think those are are two items that are quite likely to, to come up in the course of the conversation. Danny, I saw you had your hand up. Yeah, I'm interested because the Russians said the first thing they wanted to talk about was the pandemic, and the second were regional conflicts. This regional conflict, maybe that's Syria and the Middle East. From Biden's perspective, if he's going to start on human rights, uh, he's not going to have predictability and stability. I think Biden wants to say, I'm not Donald Trump. Uh, And therefore, I'm going to say what we want to do, but you can count on what I'm saying, and it's not going to change all the time, and you're not going to have the kind of relationships you had when Trump was president. It was one of the most extraordinary moments between an American president and a Russian leader. People came to me. They said they think it's Russia. I have uh, President Putin. He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. And the pres- Charles, don't you think the Americans from the left, certainly, they expect Biden to yell at Putin about human rights and interference in the elections? Biden promised that he would punish the Russians for the interference, for solar winds and for the hacking. And he hasn't done that yet. So don't they expect him to do something? Isn't he under pressure to do something? I don't think he's under pressure to do something. He probably is under pressure to make this a line item in the list of talking points. Not so much in a specific sense, but more generically, cybersecurity issues across the board, which can actually be reciprocal. I saw that in the Kremlin statement ahead of this summit, they said they wanted to discuss problems of strategic stability, which you said, Danny, that could mean the Middle East. But I was also wondering whether this means Ukraine and Belarus and this sense you get often that Putin aside, um, but that other Russians feel very misunderstood about their sensitivity towards an eastward encroachment. You see, you can tell me if, I, if I'm if i kind of guessing too much here, but I suspect that Lukashenko is not the ideal partner in Belarus for the Russians right now, given his kind of flamboyant abuse he's indulging in at the moment. But yet, they want that buffer, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the sort of long-standing issues, one of the things that actually plays quite well for Vladimir Putin at home is is this encirclement mentality that, that NATO has enlarged, is coming to our borders, is presenting a threat, interference in our internal affairs, all of that. But I think you're at the same time you're absolutely right that the partners that are there, and, and, and Lukashenko is a good example of a sort of a problem that's not, not easily solved because he is clearly facing a domestic crisis at, at home and, and lots of opposition and, and so forth. There's the lure of, of, of the West, if you more sort of more, more, more uh, wish to say that, you know, we, we see played out in, in the Ukraine, in, in Georgia and in other places. And this, this trying to, in a sense, draw the line of, of how far that Western enlargement is going to go. I mean, this is one of the perennial items for the, for the last 30 years. 
you know, it's highly debatable how who, who has the facts right on this one. Putin mentality is obviously this sort of Western conspiracy of trying to strangle Russia and encircle it. But then for some reason, a lot of these countries that have joined the NATO in the last 30 years don't see it quite that way. They see the threat as being from somewhere else and NATO providing a security blanket. Particularly the Baltics. Yeah, particularly the Baltics. But you can, you know, you can see other other examples, and of course, that one one of the things that divides opinions in Ukraine and to an extent in Belarus and elsewhere is exactly this this particular point of interference from elsewhere, and the elsewhere there is Russia, not the United States. Charles, do you think Washington understands this Russian sensitivity towards the old enemy getting closer and closer? Yes, I, I, I think so. Do they care about it? Uh, I think that uh, there is an understanding and uh, more perhaps of an acknowledgement than uh, is commonly understood, particularly on the part of um, the new administration, the the new foreign policy team. These are very experienced people. So, so, Well, that's quite promising then. I mean, because we all want those big powers to get along despite the difficult personalities until recently in the White House and, and, and still in the Kremlin. I'm assuming one thing we can be absolutely sure of is that there isn't going to be a face-to-face, one-on-one meeting with just translators and nobody taking notes as there was between Trump and Putin. I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. And what he did is an incredible offer. He offered to have the people working on the case come and work with their investigators with respect to the 12 people. I think that's an incredible offer. Charles, I see you nodding there. You were not impressed, I understand, at that event. Uh, I was not impressed. Nobody was impressed. It was uh, really quite appalling. And um, I think that the Americans, again, are going to go out of their way to ensure that nothing happens in the course of this forthcoming summit that will be in any way reminiscent of the Helsinki fiasco. Danny, did you want to come in there? Yeah, I wanted to bring up a a slightly change of subject because there's an elephant in the room that's not going to be at the discussion, and that's China. So, So let's try this. Instead of continuing the Cold War about NATO, Russia, the United States, let's say that Biden thinks that the real competition is going to come from China. Therefore, he has to be nice to Russia in the sense of the Nord Stream waiving the sanctions and saying, why don't the United States and Russia join together? Because our mutual threat in the 21st century will be China. So we have to work together and work out some kind of stability and predictability. How's that? How likely is that? You see, I can see you smiling rather doubtfully. It's it's, it's uh, not not entirely doubtfully. I think it's it's um, number one. It's it's true. I think in the Biden administration, I think this was certainly true in the Trump administration. If they identifying one sort of geopolitical source of danger and trouble, it was not Russia. It was China. I think that was very clear last summer when when Mike Pompeo went around trying to rally Europeans on the anti-Chinese cause. And I think Biden didn't make any 
great sort of secret about his concern about China in so many levels, whether it's economic, whether it's human rights, whether it's any other other thing. The problem with, uh, and you know, it's it's tempting to think about this sort of triangular diplomacy in a slightly different context. If you go back to the 70s, and that, of course, was the opening to China, was to play the Chinese and the Soviets and create this strategic partnership with China against the Soviet Union. That, that was then. And, and you, it's sort of tempting to think, well, now the roles have somewhat reversed and now we're going to do that. Uh, it's more complicated than that because China is not the Soviet Union of, of the 1970s. It is so embedded in the world economy today in, in a way the Soviet Union never was. There are other players in this game, the European Union, which have interests that intersect to some extent with the United States, but are not identical. And also, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine the sort of real politic pact between Moscow and Washington in 2021 against Beijing. I, I don't see that there's, there's a certain logic. I, I grant that to, to, to Danny, but I, it's, it, it would be a huge leap of faith that it would require so much domestic juggling and, and creativity on the part of Biden in, in particular. That, that that's extremely unlikely. I think that foreign policy as a general proposition is very, very far down the list in the priorities of the Biden administration. The uh, challenges to build back better in America are uh, all-consuming. And uh, I think what President Biden desires most ardently is that there be no distractions, no upheavals, no conflict on the foreign policy front that would distract from the effort currently ongoing and which is all-consuming. Uh, of the available political capital of the administration. And so all quiet on the Western and Eastern and Northern and Southern fronts is what the administration really wants. Yeah, I'm sure he does. And I'm sure most uh, national political leaders want that. But there's another elephant in the room, too, actually, I can see at the moment. Infection levels start to explode all over the world. The latest Italian health report here says there have been 50, more than 50 new cases overnight. Some of the official predictions made about climate change sound biblical in scale. More drought, more famine, more flooding. The pandemic and climate change. And Biden can wish all he wants for quiet and to get on with his, what he thinks are purely uh, American issues. But we have been told, our faces have been rubbed in it this year, that there are problems the world faces that we cannot solve as individual nations. So I'm wondering, would it be nice if Biden and Putin kind of talked about working together on these things? I'm sure that they will particularly uh, on uh, climate change. John Kerry has been very visible, very active, has been to Europe uh, twice. The subject of climate change has been raised with the Russians on the margins of the meeting in uh, Reykjavik, which was, after all, mostly about the Arctic Council, where climate change is an overriding issue. So yes, but it's a non-controversial issue. It is one which lends itself to international cooperation. Yeah, how you how you tackle climate change is, is quite controversial, I guess. How much you're prepared it, it, to give up? It's it's more a technical issue than than any other. It's not a it's not a political one, in my view. 
And, and I think the, the, the issue of the vaccination of the Sputnik vaccine also uh, could be something that they could look at in terms of enough vaccines going around the world, which have been a problem in the developing countries. Uh, and I do think that the Russians put the pandemic high on their agenda. Uh, and I think that's something that Biden doesn't take any risk in talking about that. Climate change, I thought that the Lavrov-Blinken uh, meeting was much more positive than the blinking meetings he had in China. And that's already an indication that certain specific subjects can come up where there can be agreement. We're almost getting close, sadly, again to the end. I wanted to, though, um, give our listeners a little bit of a, almost feel like sneak peek, what these summits are actually like behind those closed doors. Journalists from many lands gather outside the conference room where the big four are meeting. I mean, I have managed to get into a couple of, uh, more than a couple of them over the years. Charles, I'm sure you've been attached to a few as a diplomat. So how informal is it? Are they old buddies? I mean, I did once see John Kerry and, and Sergei Lavrov sharing a malt whiskey by the pool at the Intracon. And they, they did seem to be getting on quite well. Is that the kind of thing that helps the negotiations along? I think most of the interesting stuff at summits happens on the margins, actually. Some of the informal get-togethers, some of the cocktail hour uh, coffee clutch. This is important. It's part of the texture of uh, of the meeting, much more than the face-to-face -face encounter of the leaders, which is choreographed in advance. Frequently, the joint declaration has been drafted in advance as well. That really is more of a formality. But there's a lot of stuff that, that happens that can be truly productive, that simply is not talked about on the margins of these meetings. And I expect that that will be the same in Geneva. Is, is that your, your take as well? You see that the things that happen on the margins are maybe the things that you'll be able to build on in the future. I think so. It's, it's sort of, I mean, these summits they sometimes remind me of, of academic conferences. Professors come and give papers and formal sessions, but then you go home afterwards and you say, well, yeah, that was all fun, but I almost fell asleep uh, listening to so-and-so. But then we had dinner and then we had drinks. And now we have this project we're going to build on together going to the future. I think that's a little bit, peel away all the security and all of that, obviously, and, and, and all the complicated arrangements that go with, with dignitaries that, uh, that are under some protection and, and so forth. But yeah, I, I think that's, that really is, because like Charles said, I mean, most of the things have been agreed. You're having a summit not to start talking about something. Your diplomats have done much of the talking already, and, and this is sort of the, the stamp on something that, that has been agreed or, or on something that we've agreed to disagree, which is, I think, in this case, perhaps the more likely. Danny, you wanted to come in there. Yeah. I mean, remember that Reagan, Gorbachev, they had never met before. And if you look at the video, they're all smiling when they see each other first time. In terms of Putin and Biden, there's a lot of animosity out there. I mean, there's that statement in response to the question, he's a killer. They've known each other for years and you don't have any form of a warm relationship. So basically, the best outcome would be to calm everything down. But they, they do know each other and there's a lot of... Uh that has to be overcome if they're going to work out a positive relationship. And certainly Blinken and the people around Biden know the people around Putin for years. Okay. Well, 
I'm going to ask you each one more question and then we really are at the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. But what I'd like just to sum up, I'm going to start with you, Charles. Is it going to be important to us, this meeting? And for you personally, what is the kind of key outcome you might like to see? I think the answer is that there is nothing likely to come out of this encounter which is going to be life-changing for any of us, truly. And that is a good result. It's a good result because the aim of all of this is calm and tranquility and predictability and the avoidance of conflict. No no news is good news. <laughs> no news, not for me. You see? No, I, I, I would sort of broadly agree. I mean, there's no end game in these types of relationships. It's not like, you know, <laughs> you're going to suddenly move on to a, a new era. And I, I think a, a rapid transformation, a rapid decline would be bad news, I think. So I, I think if, if, if anything, the positive thing that can come out, it sort of makes things okay. The wheels of diplomacy are turning again in a fairly normal fashion. Uh, there won't be any behind closed doors, no notes, meetings, and, and so forth. So I think those are the sort of the optics that come out of it. But no, it's not going to change our world. Okay, so no major changes. Nevertheless, I'm sure for many people, the, the, the sight of two professional world leaders not going into a room and taking no notes, as happened last time, that at least is going to be reassuring, isn't it, Danny? This is part of the post-Trump era. It's a return to normalcy, which I think most people will look forward to. But again, is that a reset of the button? No, we're not in the Cold War. We're not in another Cold War. But a return to normalcy is something we should all be grateful for. A return to normalcy. Well, I think we long for that in all sorts of different ways and not just the fact that the US and Russia are talking to each other again. That brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. If you're actually listening to this podcast after the summit happened, you'll know whether our prognostications were right or wrong. In the meantime, my thanks to my guests, you see Hanimaki, Charles Adams and Daniel Warner and to everyone for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info.
Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.